Kunai has been at the forefront of digital and financial services for years, believing customers want what they want, when and how they want it. Kunai exists to cut through the noise and consider how fintech and financial services can do even better delivering for customers. Today, Kunai partners with leading companies including MasterCard, Visa, and more to build seamless customer experiences that unite digital products with fintech. It promises to deliver digital experiences that your customers will love, while also reducing time to value through Kunai's implementation knowledge and IP. Interested in partnering with them? Get in touch. I think we gotta figure this out, Julia. Is it FinTech Fin with the capital tech, or is it Fin dash tech, or is it FinTech but only the F? We have to settle on this point so that we can just <laughs> have a standard. I'm always confused when I'm writing notes about it. We do not capitalize the T, but do not put an S. It's not FinTechs. I hate the word FinTechs. It is FinTech companies, not FinTechs. That's a, a little pet peeve that some of us have, and it's very divisive. There's some people that think, oh, it's totally fine. There's other people that are very opposed to using the word fintech, so. Ah, okay. Hi everyone, it's Julie Verhage-Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from Fintech Today where we talk about all things fintech. And this is a very special episode because I've talked about the guy that edits our podcast before and he's the one that's joining me today. Uh, I am joined by Ponyboy Paul, who is our lovely editor, as I, as I said. And he also has his own podcast that you should check out called Paul and Pals. So he obviously is not in fintech, but both of us just went through the process of getting a mortgage and buying a home. So I wanted us to just chat a little bit about this experience and how fintech did or did not help us with that. So Paul, I am so excited to have you on here today. What's up? It's so weird to be on uh, this side of things. Yeah, Riverside looks a little bit different on the on the guest side than it does on the producer side. <laughs> Honestly, I'm already thinking about my audio. Like, am I going to cut this part? Am I going to edit this part? <laughs> <laughs> um, so before you started working for us, how much did you know about fintech? Honestly, I didn't even know what the word was. Like, I remember when I first heard the word, I'm like, what is that? And then when I started listening to you guys talk about it, started reading the articles, I'm like, oh, I already kind of use these things, but I never really had a name for them. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Which ones did you use? I remember when you edited our episode with Ken Lin from Credit Karma that you remembered having used Credit Karma before. Is yeah. What other ones have you checked out? I would say Credit Karma. Um, I use the Mint app a lot. A lot of personal capital. I think that was also when I was kind of getting into the financial literacy of things. I'm really big into that. And I think a lot of those apps just kind of like help you track your, your worth and all that. Also, Robinhood, because everybody has Robinhood, <laughs> and probably all the banking apps of the banks that I utilize. So, you know, Chase, American, all that stuff. Cool. Are, are you trading three times levered options on Robinhood or are you <laughs> keeping it simple? <laughs> no, I used to think I was a dope investor back in like college because I was like, oh, I made like $10 this week, man. Yo, I'm about to be rich. And then I just, <laughs> I just, I think once I learned more about um, financial literacy, I, I realized I'm more of a passive investor. I don't really care enough to like do the work because I think active trading, obviously, you know, it's not as successful, but I think if you actually care enough, you can actually, you know, make money. But I was like, nah, I don't care enough. So I just found some lazy ETFs and just started throwing my money in. There you go. There you go. One thing. So this is a total like rant on something else, but I, I'm helping out a guy named Mario on uh, the S1 club for Robinhood. And I was going mm -hmm. back through all my notes on them because I first met with them in like 
2016, 2017. And in some of my notes, I talked about how I was meeting with Baiju, one of the founders, and he like went on this rant about how he thought ETFs were so stupid. Like, why don't people just <laughs> buy the stocks that they like rather than having to be in like a tech index and own like crappy tech stocks? Why not just pick the good ones? Mm -hmm. It was just so funny going back and reading all of that. But on the mortgage process, neither of us, I think, really used anything at fintech, or at least we don't know that we used anything yeah. fintech. Something that like blend that's white labeled, we might not have known that we used it even though we did mm -hmm. but did i personally didn't and it sounds like you didn't either when applying for your mortgage buying a home all those things yeah one stood out to me though that i didn't even know was fintech till i had i was listening to you later right and i remember when i was trying to meet lenders and you know get different options like their fees rates one of them asked me to provide my checking accounts like all my basically to um, upload all my money accounts and I thought I was going to have to log into like each separate thing, find my account number, but they were using Plaid and Plaid yeah. allowed me to like log in and then they just took all my stuff in there. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was simple. But at the time, I didn't know what was running that product until you guys mentioned it. I'm like, oh, I remember that name. So I guess in a low key way you do, but you just don't know what the names are. Yeah, my lender didn't even have that. And that is something I most definitely would have <laughs> used because I had to go in like download my HM Bradley, yep. download my Betterment, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what, did, the lender that you went through, you don't need to tell me like the name of them, but was it like yeah. a small local lender? Was it a larger lender? Yeah, so I'm actually dealing with the new construction. And one thing that I learned about new construction is that a lot of them will have like, uh, you know, a primary lender that they've made a deal with. And the benefit of using that lender is that you'll usually get, you know, some type of discount towards the purchase of the home, whether it's like, you know, this much of a closing cost or no signing fee or all that stuff. And then what I learned is I was going through a broker to figure out like different types of lenders. But then when I heard that the new construction, the builder had their own and there was, you know, $10,000 of a closing cost, I'm like, why wouldn't I do that? So I ended up going with them in terms of their size, I'm not really sure how big they are, small they are, but, you know, they seem pretty intuitive with their interface and all that stuff. So it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. One thing I noticed, and I didn't realize this, but it actually makes a lot of sense, is just with this housing boom, people often, and not even just in the housing boom, this happened before too, but I think it happens more so now, is that people don't want their financing to fall through and then have to put their home back on the market, right? So we had mm -hmm. a lot of people that we had... Um, tried better mortgage for like this pre-approval letter. And while they were okay with that as like a pre-approval, they didn't want us to actually go with them. They wanted something guaranteed by this like big local lender that we have here in Austin. So I found that fascinating. And it was just because the the lender that they wanted us to use like was gonna go through so much detail and like there was such a little chance of the financing actually falling through that like that made our offer on the home stronger than someone else that was using someone like a better. Mm, I see. So was there like a worry that they weren't going to be as reliable? Is that kind of, was there any like analysis of pros and cons or just, just the fact that you might not get approved? Like what Might was not get approved was the oh, reason. Okay. Yeah. So they were like, oh, well, like what if they actually like misstated their income or they don't actually have this much uh, and the home doesn't appraise and they can't afford the down payment then and stuff like that. So it wasn't that like they wouldn't have offered us the home otherwise. It's just like with so many offers on homes, yeah. you want your offer to be as strong as possible. So having something from a local lender where they're so certain that if they pick you, they're not going to have to put it back on the market was a really big selling point for a lot of people. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, I think one of the 
selling points for me was the fact that you're hooked up with somebody personally that I'm able to just text them now and ask them questions. And I think, uh, I don't know if it's not really like a fintech application, but I think just that relatability aspect, if you know more fintechs are thinking about the mortgage space, is just having that one-to-one contact, whether it's via through an app that can ask, you know, answer basic questions or just somebody. I think that's been a big changing point for me. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Cause I think as much as you try to automate a lot of this, having someone, especially as a first time home buyer like us, like we don't know what we're I doing. Don't know like, anything. <laughs> I'm like, what documents do you need from me? What's title insurance? Like, yeah. how do I do all of this? Like, how much do I need at closing? Like, I want to make sure I have it all there. Honestly. Having like, whether it's your real estate agent, whether it's the lender, someone that you can just ask like, hey, like, am I doing everything correctly is so mm-hmm. crucial. Yeah. It is. And I think one of the, going back to the credit karma, one thing that I remembered is the benefit of knowing that it won't affect your credit too much when you're trying to find different lenders. Like I didn't know about the whole, like if you check it multiple times within, I think 14 days or 30 days, it only counts as one credit inquiry. I remember like when I did that, credit karma sent me an email like, hey, you now have this many days until, you know, it counts as more than one inquiry. So that's one thing that sticks out to me too. Yeah, for sure. That was one of my big questions when, so our lease actually still goes for a number of months yet. We were just kind of browsing like, hey, if we find a really good home, like rates are super low right now, like might as well Mm -hmm. jump on it. And I remember asking my agent, I was like, okay, like if we do this pre-approval, there's going to be a hard credit inquiry. How long does this pre-approval last for? Because I don't want to have to do it like 10 times because that would really fuck my credit. (laughs) Yeah, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So um, that was a really big thing. And it, I also got the alert from Credit Karma telling me like, hey, there's been a hard inquiry, like make sure you did this. And then by the way, like here's how long it's good for, things yeah. like that. And there were other tips like don't make any big purchases before you're done closing on the home, things mm-hmm. like that. Don't take out another loan, don't apply for a credit card, don't buy a car, all that good stuff because then your mortgage lender is not going to be a big fan of that. No, no. And I think what was weird for me, so I'm in a weird spot where like my initial signing, I guess, of my contract was in like November 2020. And if you can't tell, I'm in my girlfriend's apartment, so my house is still not built. But one thing that I realized is like when they first checked it, you know, to like um, see what my credit would be, I didn't know that your actual mortgage rate is based on when you actually close. So I remember when I had signed, like rates were crazy low, like in the craziest at that time. And then I was supposed to initially close in like April. And I'm like, so I still get the rate from initial. Like, no, you're going to get the rate from when you actually close. So that's another thing that I learned. Like, it doesn't really matter what you might get pre-approved for. It's really matter depending on the actual closing date and the numbers around that time. But luckily, they're back down. So I'm not I'm not too worried. Yeah, you should be okay. When So it's not like necessarily like your exact closing date, but it's the day that you decide like, okay, here's the closing date. Here's how much I'm going to need, et cetera. Because I know ours is locked in and we technically don't close, close and get the keys to the house for another two weeks, but it's very close to that point. And we got Mm -hmm. locked in at 2.875. So you still should get a pretty good rate. You should be good. I think they hit their lowest at like... I think the lowest was in January. They got down to like 2.4 on a 30-year mortgage. Like, unreal. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. But they're still low. So you're okay. Unless something crazy happens in the next month before you actually do close on the home, you should be all right. Yeah. And one thing, when you were going into yours, I feel like I'm I'm interviewing you now. (laughs) When the interview interviews interviewer, I was going to ask, when you were, you know, the most common consensus is like, oh, I'm about to get a home. Let me put a 20% down payment. 
But I think it's a very archaic thing because 20% of what houses are now is a ton of money. So going to yours, were you kind of like, what's the minimum I can put down? Or were you like hard set on like, I have to raise 20% of whatever this home is? I wasn't hard set on it, but I really did want to try to do that because otherwise you have to pay this thing called PMI, which is the mortgage insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, we did end up finding one where we are barely able to make the 20%. I if it would have been like, at like full disclosure, the house was 600 grand. If it would have been 650, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Gotcha. Um, but it was really nice to get in that range where we were able to. Um, my family did offer to float me a little bit of money for it that I ended up not needing. I'm going to take like a 5k loan to buy furniture, but otherwise yeah. down payment and everything is just money that Jordan and I have saved up, okay. um, which is really good. One thing I didn't realize though, in this whole process is that thankfully I don't own enough of fintech today where it would be an issue, but people that own a certain amount of their own companies, it gets really complicated getting mm. a mortgage. Like there's a, it's, it's very hard for a founder to buy a home. Like hopefully Ian does not plan on buying a home anytime soon because <laughs> He's going to have a really hard time trying to do it. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. What makes it like difficult? Is it just, I don't know, more forms or what? Well, there's more forms. And like, since you have so much ownership in a company, it makes a difference of like how much of your income can count. Since mm. Jordan works for my company, if I owned more than a certain percent, only my income would count. His income would not count. Like, what? It, there, there's a lot of complications around it. I also like... I don't know that there's a way to fix it though, because I was talking to some people about this and it's like, there's probably ways that you could make it a little bit better, but I don't know that there's a complete way around it. Cause like so many people run startups now and we only really talk about the ones that make it work. There's a slew of them that do not make it work though. Mm-hmm. And imagine if you were the mortgage lender on that loan and their company just goes bankrupt and they don't have an income anymore and stuff. I see. Oh, so. Okay, so it's more the worry of the fact that you guys are actually new and you haven't really proven maybe revenue and profit for such a long time. I see. Okay. I can see it from their perspective then. Yeah. It's just, it's an added risk versus like if you work for someone like Google, like, yeah, you can get fired from Google, but it's pretty hard to get fired from Google and Google's certainly not going to go bankrupt. I see. Okay. Wow. That's good yeah. to know. I'm uh, not found any company anytime soon. <laughs> well, now you, you bought a home now. Oh, so okay, I guess good. I'm good. Okay, but you can okay. go ahead oh. and, and found a podcast editing company <laughs> or a mortgage company, whatever your your hopes and desires are. Yeah, <laughs> I work on that right after this call. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, when you were saving up for a home, uh, did you use anything like Marcus, H and Bradley, like? Uh, a betterment where you had like this fund that you were putting money towards a home or did you just kind of like have it all together and be like, all right, like I've got enough money now I can do it. That's a, that's a great question. And I think when I was first um, starting out on the process of saving for a home, one of the, I guess the best resources I had is I read this book called set for life by Scott Trench, who is the CEO of bigger pockets, a huge real estate uh, investing, you know, company. Right. And I actually asked him the same question because in his book, he was like, yeah, how did I ask him, how did you actually save that first 20K or 25K? And he said he had basically just put it in um, index funds. Like basically he had it in the market, not just on the savings account. And I was very close to doing that. But then I I just had this fear of like, well, I'm saving it within the year. I want to use it. And I'm thinking about like maybe, you know, short term to maybe long term capital gains tax. 
So mm-hmm. I ended up not investing it in the market and just putting it all in my um, Ally savings account, which is getting a great, maybe is it, I don't even know if they're back to 1% savings rate, but at that point I wanted to just have that easy access money because I had this fear of like, what about when the time that I actually need that money, it decreases to a point where it's not sufficient enough or- yeah. I have to deal with like, okay, what are the short-term capital gains tax implications? So I kind of just put it in a regular old saving account and kept it boring. You could have put it in Dogecoin and you could have bought a mansion, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Honestly. And I, I, I've been thinking about that too, because I was like, okay, where do I want to start putting more of my savings money? So it's like not just sitting stagnant. And Mint has been pushing BlockFi so heavy. They're That's like, oh, you can get funny. you can get eight percent uh, interest rate. I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't seem that uh, that certain. But I, I've been looking more into it, so I can't give any judgment now. Yeah, well, I Jordan and I both use HM Bradley, um, so we can put something in the show notes on that. And it's based on the percent that you actually save each month. So if you save more than twenty percent, you get three percent. If you save either 15 or 10%, I forget, you'd get 2% interest rate. And then if you save less than that, you get 5%. The only catch is that you have to have a direct deposit there every single mm, month. Okay. So as long as you're, as long as me, as long as you have your direct deposit through me going through there, <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, that's not getting like BlockFi, I think does some investing in like Bitcoin and whatnot with the money that you put in there. This is not, um, uh, going into any crazy things like Got that. You. So okay. you're safe. You're safe. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Did you, so going through the whole process, is there anything that you think fintech could make easier? You mentioned that plaid note, which I think is super helpful because yeah. there's so many different forms that you have to upload. But is there mm-hmm. anything else that you went through that you think fintech could just either make it easier to understand and make it easier to make sure you're financially prepared, mm-hmm. things like that? Ah, that's a that's a great question. I think um, going back to my initial comment on how having the support of my you know one on one representative and him being able to be easily accessible, I think that's great. So definitely having a strong you know personal you know contact um, during the whole thing. But I think as we were just talking about the savings and if we should invest it, I think it would be dope if there was a um, fintech uh, proponent that kind of like helped you find the best place to save that money in the meantime, because, you know, it knows you're going to have to save a large amount of sum. So what if it's like looking for, hey, this is the best interest rate here, or this is the best um, rate for your risk tolerance, like something that kind of, you know, helps you throughout the mortgage process and telling you like, hey, this is what rates are. We recommend you apply this time or this part of the year. This is what we predict. So I think maybe the savings aspect and also just having a support and tips through along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point because I think a lot of people don't realize the difference between a 2.5% interest rate on a 30-year mortgage and even a 3 or 3.5% interest rate is, yeah. I mean, you buy a $500,000 home that easily could save you $100,000 over the course of that 30-year loan. Like it's a big difference. So even though housing prices are pretty high, if you can mm-hmm. get in on a decent deal where you think it's fairly, I mean, don't go buying a house that's like way overpriced, yeah. but you get the point. Like it does make a little bit of a difference. It's the same reason that Jordan and I bought a car about a year ago is that all these places, they actually didn't know that demand for cars was going to be so high. Ah. And we got like 0% interest financing. We got some money off the car. And like now car demand is crazy and you're not going to get a lot of those things anymore. Yeah. I had a friend so. do that during the um, pandemic when it hit like the bottom. 
he like sold his used car. He already had that paid off. And then I think he got a Jaguar for like 0.5% APR. And I'm like, wait, what? So definitely it's, it's a finesse. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of companies, whether it's a neo bank, whether it's someone like a mint or a credit karma, I think just giving little nudges be like, hey, did you know interest rates are really low? Like, here we see you have a mortgage. Do you want to refinance? Or we see you have been saving for a home in this exactly. fund, things like that. I think that's a really good idea and very proactive, which fintechs are better at banks than being proactive, but there's yeah. still always room to improve on this. Honestly. Front, so. And I think going off what you said, I think it's always, I think the best app will probably come from somebody that's already aware of your entire uh, account and portfolio because they should, you know, if you're, if you're using your credit card, your debit card, they should know your spending. And I feel like they know your spending. They should be able to optimize it, your your mortgage experience based on your history, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even little tips like, hey, here's ways to improve your credit score if you're looking for a home in the next six, next six to 12 months and stuff mm-hmm. like that, for yeah. sure. We just found something else for the, any fintechs listening. Build this and then credit me and Paul here. <laughs> yes, please let me let me invest. <laughs> I keep hearing about all these VC stars. Like, okay, I gotta I gotta you know really tune in and see who I can throw my money at. <laughs> Next up, we'll have a, a Paul and Pals VC fund. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Just invest in all my pals. Honestly, though, honestly. There you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Well, I learned a lot in this conversation, Paul. I hope you did, too, and I hope our listeners did as well. Yeah, same. It's uh, always good to learn more about fintech, even though I'm still trying to figure... I think we got to figure this out. Julie, I think you're the best for this, you and Ian. Are we going to... Is it fintech, you know, fin with the capital tech, or is it fin dash tech, or is it fintech, but only the F is... Like, we have to settle on this point so that we can just <laughs> have a standard. You know, I'm always confused when I'm writing writing notes about it. Yeah, we, we do not capitalize the T, but also do not put an S. It's not fintechs. I hate the word fintechs. It is fintech companies, not fintechs. Okay. That, that's a, a little pet peeve that some of us have. And it's a very divisive mm-hmm. uh, pet peeve. There's some people that think, oh, it's totally fine. There's other people that are very opposed to using the word fintech. So ah, okay. that's the biggest one. That's the biggest one <laughs> That's right good there. to know. Okay. Um, otherwise, go rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you listen to this, and check out Paul's podcast, Paul and Pals. It's a good one. Ian and I are going to be on it very soon. Um, otherwise, Paul, hopefully editing this episode is super easy for you now. Super easy. <laughs> I'm going to make my voice sound so sultry. And I'll work on yours as well, but I'm going to make sure I sound amazing on this. So. <laughs> you are too funny. All right. Well, we'll have you back on again soon. Cool? All right. Talk to you later. Bye, guys.